Come on. Welcome to Money Savage, a savage approach to personal finance. This is George Grumbacher, and the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, a strong and powerful Barry Flagg. Barry, are you ready to do this? Yes, I am. Excellent. Let's do this. Barry is a CFP, CHFC, CLU, GFP, founder of Verilytic, a contributor to Investopedia, Investment News. He's an expert in all things life insurance and also a returning guest to the Money Savage podcast. Very excited to have you on back on. Happy to be back. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your personal life, uh, some more about your work and why you do what you do. So uh, I um, uh, in, in, in Tampa, Florida, uh, uh, moved here. Uh, first chance I got, a, I, I got a chance to decide where I wanted to live. was born and raised in the Northeast. Uh, did not like dungeon weather, uh, which is what it felt <laughs> like to me uh, for nine months of the year. Maybe not that much, but uh, vacation down here with my kids and uh, with my family. And first chance I got, I got in a car uh, and uh, drove to Florida and, and, and have never looked back. Nice. Um, pro- professionally, I'm the, uh, I, I learned from the College uh, of Financial Planning that I am now the oldest, youngest CFP in the history of the college. Somebody okay. has actually beat me. Hmm. Um, but 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 I did it you know twenty plus some years ago so so I'm now the oldest youngest CFP uh, kind of kind of came into this business uh, w- w- in the sense that the this apple didn't fall too far from the tree that was my father he was active in the, in the financial planning business uh, in the 70s putting the words financial and planning together in the same sentence which was uh, he was not the only one doing it, but he was, there was not, not as many people putting the words financial and planning together in the same sentence as there are today. Uh, so kind of born into this business and, um, uh, uh, gravitated toward life insurance because I thought it was the area where, uh, financial advisors, at least nowadays, uh, can, can, can make the biggest difference, uh, uh, it, it is the last, largest, most neglected asset on clients' balance sheets. It's the only one that really hasn't been brought into the wealth management process. And so I think advisors uh, can make a huge difference in prudent in helping clients prudently select and properly manage life insurance. Uh, so I built a couple of businesses around that principle. Got it. And I did see that uh, on, on your website, I figured out that there's around $3 trillion in in neglected wealth in this when when you start looking at life insurance as an asset class which i think i recall um i think i shared with you off air last time that i, st- I started my career with with new york life back in 2001 and spent all told about 10 years with that company so mm-hmm. fairly familiar with it and it seems like that conversation started happening during that time period talking about life insurance as an asset class but one thing that i also can remember pretty clearly is that they did not we're not interested in having their agents talk about life settlements. And that's what I was hoping to talk with you about today. So if you could sure. tell us a little bit about what life settlements are. So uh, since I started in the investment business first uh, and then uh, sought to expand my experience and diversify my resume and went to go work in the life insurance business, uh, my journey in the life insurance business has been in applying parallels from the investment business. So 
using a, an analogy, a parallel or an, an analogy to the investment business, I can buy a stock, uh, a, a, a stock certificate in a company uh, on their initial public offering. Uh, and that would be the primary market. Uh, so when IPM, IBM first went public, uh, there was an IPO, and and if I bought the stock right then directly from IBM, or if they ever did a did a subsequent offering, I could buy stock directly from IPM, IBM. Um, uh, if they're not issuing stock, then I can still buy stock, IBM stock, but that's on the secondary market. I, I don't know which market they trade on, New York Stock Exchange probably, NASDAQ, whatever, but any of the secondary markets, I can still buy um, or sell uh, my IBM stock. So uh, analogizing that to the life insurance business, most people are, only, are, are, are either only familiar or most familiar uh, with buying life insurance or selling life insurance, but and I'm going to define what that means in a minute, but buying life insurance from the primary market, from the big insurance companies that we see advertising on TV. Um, the, um, uh, if you no longer need the life insurance, uh, you can essentially sell it. I mean, you're turning it back in for its cash value. So the sale price of a life insurance policy uh, back to the original issuer is the surrender value, the, the, the cash surrender value. Uh, some years ago, 10-ish years ago, um, maybe a little more, uh, a secondary market developed for life insurance, uh, mostly or, or, or significantly uh, driven by uh, the uh, AIDS epidemic, or what was the epidemic back at that time, um, people who had life insurance, uh, and it wasn't just uh, victims of AIDS, people who had life insurance, who had a very short life expectancy, uh, a market arose where they could sell the policy to a what was what's called a viator uh and if if you if your life expectancy was less than two years you could sell it to the viator and you could use the proceeds for medical medical expenses you could actually use them for whatever, whatever you want but the idea behind the, the original concept was you could sell the policy to a viator uh and you you could use the proceeds while you're still alive for these significant medical expenses like in the in the aids situation um, that marketplace grew uh, to be bigger than just uh, insureds uh, who were terminally ill within two, with a, with a two-year or left life expectancy uh, into the life settlement market. And the life settlement market is uh, also investor groups uh, who uh, pool their capital uh, and buy policies. Uh, and they buy them the same way they did uh, in the in the viator example or the really short life expectancy example, uh, they calculate their holding period, uh, kind of like a bond. You know, you buy a a zero coupon bond in the secondary market, uh, not from the original issuer. You buy it in the secondary market. You buy it for a discount of its face value. Well, a bond has a specified maturity date. A life insurance policy doesn't have a specified maturity date. Uh, but anybody who's familiar with the life insurance industry is going to, or the insurance industry in general, is going to know about the principle of the law of large numbers. Uh, and the law of large numbers says that while 
a individual event may not be predictable. If you have enough uh, of these risks in your pool, then the then the risks become become predictable. And, and you know that some portion of your pool is going to pass within two years, another portion of your pool is going to pass within four years, another portion of your pool is going to pass within eight years, et cetera, so on and so forth. And and so that you you have a uh, an actuarial maturity date that the, the buyer calculates. And so they say, how much will I pay for, for instance, a million-dollar policy that has an eight-year actuarial maturity? Uh, not that that's, that's precise in that individual example, uh, but with the law of large numbers, they know that however many of the insureds in their pool, someone's going to pass on that maturity date and, 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 and is going to make their numbers work. Um, that's basically the life settlement uh, uh, business. Got it. So they figured out that they can make money in it. So, so, <laughs> so, so it kind of makes sense. Um, yeah, I mean, the, just like just like a bond investor expects yeah. to, you know, they're they're going to buy a bond at a discount off its face value, uh, and the discount is going to be whatever, and they'll only bid for that bond uh, a price that will give them the rate of return that they want out of that investment. And it's the same way the life settlement business works. The buyers will bid on the policy, uh, and their bid on the policy um, uh, calculates in the rate of return that, that their purchase price would have to grow to, to be the death benefit when they expect, when they expect to get it. So it's very much like a, a zero coupon bond. Got it. Okay. So if I've got a, a million dollar life insurance policy, it doesn't mean that somebody's going to pay me a million dollars in cash for it. Uh, in fact, it means that they won't pay you a million dollars in cash for it uh, in, unless your life expectancy is within 24 hours. And they probably still <laughs> wouldn't pay you a million dollars right. for it. Uh, but yeah, you get the idea. It's, you know, if, if, if the insured is terminally ill within two years of, of death or with a two year life expectancy, uh, then the amount would be closer uh, to the million in, in our example. Um, if there's a carry cost, it would be less. You know, if, if, if the buyer is going to have to pick up premiums, then it doesn't work exactly like a zero coupon bond because there's a carry cost. Uh, so the, the purchase price would be less. Uh, but it, it's all a function of how much they would have to pay to buy and carry and or carry the policy and how long they're going to have to wait to get their money back. And then it's simple time value money from there. Got it. Okay. So it, it, very interesting to, to hear that the market sort of grew and it grew into its own or was, or became popular because, because of the AIDS epidemic. And I know that there are life insurance companies out there that have some type of living benefits rider that says that, Hey, uh, client A, if you are diagnosed as terminally ill and given two years or less to live, we will give you a portion of the death benefit before you die. And you can do with that money whatever you want. Is that in response to this secondary market springing up? Um, That's a really good question, George. I don't, I've never heard it. I've never heard an actuary or, or a, a product specialist or an insurance company say that they designed the living benefits riders in response to the life settlement business. Uh, but certainly the fact that uh, the life settlement marketplace actually became a bona fide marketplace. Uh, you know, if I'm a, a actuary or a product designer inside an insurance company, I would say, hey, there's definitely a need, a need here. We can design a rider for it. We can charge a little more for it. 
so so they knew there was a market for those types of riders. Uh, so I guess indirectly, yeah. Got it. Okay. And I wanted to to just do a quick piece of clarification when we talk about if a life insurance policy has some kind of a cash value or a surrender value on it, that's some type of permanent insurance. And I think people have an understanding that there's two primary types. It's permanent insurance, which means it has some kind of a cash value, which means that the death benefit will probably be there as, as long as you pay the premium. And there's term insurance, which doesn't have any kind of a cash value component to it. And you buy it in sure. increments of time, like 10 years, 20 years, or even 30 yeah. years. Um, and it doesn't really have a cash value if you stop paying the premium then the insurance goes away kind of a thing is there is there a market for life settlements with term insurance so uh think about it like a zero coupon bond again uh the zero coupon bond uh will be worth something on a specific date um as you just mentioned a term insurance policy, so like a 10-year term insurance policy, a 10-year term insurance policy is worth nothing after 10 years. So a term insurance policy can't be sold on the life settlement secondary market, but many term policies have a conversion, a a right of conversion, a contractual right of conversion, uh, where you can convert it into a permanent product. And again, depending upon the carry cost that the buyer would have to assume uh, for that permanent product because there is no cash value, so it can't be paid up. So they would have to convert it, and then they would have to pay the premiums associated with a permanent policy, which is going to be more than the term policy. Assuming the, um, uh, the, the time value of money works, then you could sell a term policy by not actually selling the term policy, but by converting, exercising your right of conversion, converting to a permanent policy, and then the, the buyer would actually buy the permanent policy. Got it. Okay. So one of these, a third party who buys policies, they couldn't buy a term policy and then convert it. The owner of the policy would have to convert it and then sell it. Uh, another good question. Um, <laughs> I I don't know if it's a simultaneous. Okay. Uh, we're actually doing one right now. Um, uh, I I don't know if it's the the buyer buys the term and then converts. Um, buyers are pretty um, uh, uninvolved. Uh, I would. I, I, it's my expectation that the conversion process has to happen. Um, uh, prior to the actual closing date of the sale, but it, but it would be pretty simultaneous. Um, for, and I'll give you a, for instance, uh, a pot, let's say, and, and this is not term, this is not a term insurance instance, but uh, it's another instance of buyers take a pretty hands-off uh, approach. They, they, they write a check uh, and then they monitor the policy and that's about all that they do. Um, for instance, a policy that is in uh, in its grace period, a policy where the, the premium is due, uh, hasn't been paid, it hasn't lapsed, so it's in that 30-day grace period, uh, buyers will not close. Uh, even if, the, you know, they're going to, even if they would deduct the uh, premium out of, their, out of what they would otherwise pay as a purchase price, they want the policy in good order when they take titles of the policy. Um, 
So I'm, I'm pretty sure it would be convert and then buy it, almost simultaneously. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, and for those people who are listening who are thinking, well, so what happens when I sell the policy? Is somebody going to have ill intent towards me and try to, and, you know, try to kill me and then they'll get the money? And the answer is no, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I've had uh, clients over the years who just never got comfortable uh, uh, with, you know, what what, what we kind of jokingly call uh, the Tony Soprano Life Settlement Company. How do I know that Tony Soprano is not going to be buying my policy? Right. Um, and uh, that's really a personal decision. Um the conversation with clients goes something like this, that, uh, yes, the buyer is going to be an investment group. Uh, the policy, once it's purchased, it's going to be held by a, a third-party custodian. Uh, Wells Fargo, I think, is, is pretty big in this business. Um, uh, there, and there are some others uh, where this is a large financial institution uh, that is uh, – uh, that ensures the privacy uh, once the policy is purchased, you know, it is, it is held in a, in a blind trust. Uh, uh, now, does that mean that your identity was known at the time of purchase? Yes. If, if that is a concern, then, then some people don't move forward. Uh, but there are uh, provisions um, uh, in the process to protect privacy, to limit that risk, uh, we we ensure uh, on the uh, as a sell side rep we're representing the the seller. Uh, we insist that the although most most purchase agreements include this nowadays, in, 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 insist that there's language in the purchase agreement that says that if the policy is ever resold, it has to be resold as part of a block. You know, not a single policy uh, has to be sold to another institution of equal or greater size. Uh, reputation, da-da-da-da. Um, those are the protections that uh, are available uh, that we you'd want to make sure is in the purchase agreement, um, but some people still don't get comfortable with it. And, and, and uh, you know, that's our, our job is to serve the client, uh, make them aware of the opportunities and risks, uh, and, then, and, then, and then leave it up to them to make the decision. Well, Barry, Savage Nation is ready for your difference-making tip. What do you have for them? Uh, it's definitely this uh, buy-side versus sell-side representation. Uh, the advertisers on TV, uh, are they're buying directly, so they are, and they are the buyer. So they are, by definition, buy-side representation. Um, if you've got a policy that's, you know, other than a you know, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollar policy is going to give you just a little bit of cash. If you got a policy in the six digits, certainly in the seven digits, uh, make sure you're working with an advisor who can uh, run you through the sell side representation, who can represent your interests in this process uh, to ensure that you get uh, more than than. Um, uh, well, to ensure that you get what you deserve uh, out of the policy, to ensure you get what the what the policy is actually worth uh, on the marketplace, um, and, and and an interesting twist on that: there are a number of insurers 
uh, that mispriced policies some years ago, and they're trying to buy the policies back. Also kind of a buy side uh, uh, activity. They're sending out letters. You know, they're saying you got $100,000 of cash value. We'll give you $150,000. Uh, that policy, and I'm, I'm completely making these numbers up, but, but the, the degree of difference is representative. Uh, that policy could be worth $250,000 on the life settlement secondary market. So um, the the biggest takeaway, understand the buy, the difference between buy side and sell side representation and make sure that you're working with a sell side rep uh, if you're ever considering a policy or if you're an advisor advising somebody on a policy. Well, that is great stuff that definitely gets a come on. Come on. And always makes sense. And it's so important to have professionals working working in your corner. So I appreciate that very much. And Barry, thank you so much for coming on. Where can Savage Nation learn more about you? Uh, So uh, follow me on LinkedIn. Um, I wear a number of hats. I I, uh, started in the investment business. I spent some time uh, in the insurance business. Uh, I founded a company called Verilytic, uh, which uh, is a, a research product that advisors can use to help uh, clients help advise clients on the prudent selection and proper management of life insurance. Uh, so if you want to know all about my background, uh, LinkedIn is the best place. Uh, if you're a financial advisor and you want to know more about how just like the, just like investment professionals use, couldn't, couldn't do their job without Morningstar or something like it. If you want something like that in the insurance business to support your advice to clients, then go check out www.verilytic.com. Perfect. Well, Savage Nation, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show Barry your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas. Follow him on LinkedIn and go to Verilytic as well, On uh, and I will list both of those in the notes of the show. Thank you again, Barry. My pleasure. Always fun. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight because we are all in this together. What's up, Savage Nation? Please support the show by subscribing, leave us a review, And definitely feel free to share us with somebody you think would like it. Come on!